Let's get our Bibles and open to Luke chapter 15. Luke 15, that's on page 1203. If you don't have a, a copy of Scripture, just grab the Pew Bible in front of you, turn to page 1203. Certainly one of the most familiar uh, chapters of Scripture in all the Bible. I um, have been looking forward to preaching through this section of Luke for quite some time and uh, just preparing our hearts for the text we dealt with last week that will lead us into this week. Remember that um, we put the the chapters in the Scripture and the Lord gave it to us just all in, in one piece. And uh, I want you to know that, that the text that closed out Luke 14 about our love for our family and ours, even ourselves in comparison to Him. And then all through Luke 15, this, this is all just one big teaching by the Lord, one piece that belongs together. And it's an amazing, just amazing passage of Scripture. Let's begin reading Luke 15, verse 1. Jesus says, Then all the, all the tax collectors and the sinners drew near to Him, that's the Lord, to hear Him. And the Pharisees and the scribes complained, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. So Jesus spoke this parable to them, saying, What man of you, having a hundred sheep, if he loses one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the wilderness and go after the one which is lost until he finds it? And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders, rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and neighbors and says to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep which was lost. Then I say to you that likewise there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over ninety-nine just persons who need no repentance. Or what woman, having ten silver coins, if she loses one coin, does not light a lamp, sweep the house and search carefully until she finds it? And when she has found it, she calls her friends and neighbors together, saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the peace which I lost. Likewise, I say to you, there is joy in the presence of angels of God over one sinner who repents. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this word. God, we receive it today as a perfect gift that you've given unto us. Lord, I pray you'd give us ears to hear now and hearts that would receive the message you have for us, Father. Take control of my thoughts and my mouth and I might proclaim only that which you'd have me to say. And Lord, I pray that this text this morning will do in the hearts of my brothers and sisters what it has accomplished in me, Lord, and that you would be glorified in and through all that's done here. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, I want you to understand the context of what's going on here. The, the, the first two verses are extremely important in understanding all that we'll see in Luke 15. You're all familiar with the parable of the prodigal sons, which will be next week. But I want you to understand that all of this is set in the context of what the Lord lays out for us in these first two verses. Look at uh, verse 1. All the tax collectors and the sinners, they drew near to Him to hear Him. Now I want you to focus on... Uh, exactly what the Bible's telling us here. The, the, the tax collectors and the sinners have not drawn near to Jesus, which sometimes they do, but in this instance, it's not to see miracles. It's not to receive a healing. It's not to get a free, free meal as Jesus uh, brings food forth out of a few loaves and fishes. It's none of those. They've gathered to hear Him, the Bible says. It's what the Lord has to say. It's what He's telling them, it's the message He's sharing with them that is compelling the tax collectors and the sinners to come close to Him, to desire to be in His presence. Now, we need to recognize, maybe you're new to Bible study, maybe this uh, Christian walk is brand new for you, and so I need you to understand that the tax collectors and the sinners would represent the most alienated members of society, that these two groups were really the, the, the people who would be most avoided by a religious crowd. You've got the tax collectors on one hand, they're seen as traitors. They have uh, betrayed their own people. They're, they're Jewish by birth, but they have embraced uh, the Roman 
occupation for money. Tax collectors made a lot of money by, by overtaxing their own people, and so therefore uh, they've chosen wealth over their, their, their country, and so they're very traitorous in the eyes of the, the Jews, and they feel that also they have betrayed God in so doing. And so they were, they were forbidden from worshiping in the synagogue, basically were totally outcast by their own people. Then you've got the sinners. The sinners really represent a group of people who, uh, just for simplicity's sake, they're people who make no effort to follow after God. They, they have real, no real moral compass. They do not uh, seem to uh, pursue any moral code or any religious activity or behavior in any way. And so they just live for themselves. They live according to their own desires. And so the Bible says that they came to hear him. It also says that all, that there was a, a multitude of them. And they, that all, I'm assuming, means in this area that they've all gathered around. And Jesus always accepted this group of people. From the beginning, he made it clear why he had come. And he has always embraced the people who seem to be the most lawless, the most uh, lost, the furthest away from God. Back in Luke chapter 5, the Lord called Matthew, the tax collector, as his disciple. And if you remember, he walked up to Matthew as he's sitting at the tax collector's booth and he said, Matthew or Levi, will you follow me? Matthew got up and left all that he had and followed him. And immediately they went to Matthew's house and had a party. And the Bible says that there at that dinner were a multitude of other tax collectors. That he invited all of his tax collector friends and they all came and joined together. And Jesus there dined with them and fellowship with them and no doubt shared the gospel with them. And in the same way, the Pharisees were appalled that he would be there eating and dining with sinners such as tax collectors. Then in Luke 7, after hearing Jesus speak, the Bible says even the tax collectors justified God, having been baptized by the baptism of John. But the Pharisees, again, and the lawyers rejected the will of God for themselves. So we see this intersection again. Later on in Luke 7, Jesus says of himself, he says, the Son of Man has come eating and drinking, and you say, look, He's a glutton and a wine-bibber, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. So this is a group of people that Jesus has always uh, had a heart for. He's always proclaimed that He's come to bring the good news of the gospel to. And they, which is really the most astonishing part of the entire uh, story, they have always wanted to be with Him. That it's not that they have, they didn't feel uh, rejected or judged or, and no one had harsher things to say than the Lord Jesus, and yet they, they came. They wanted to hear. They wanted to be in His presence. They wanted to, to, to be around Him and to listen to the things that He had to say. But then in verse 2, as always, we see the Pharisees and the scribes, the teachers of the law, they began to complain and said, this man, he receives sinners and he even eats with them. Now, I want you to understand that the Pharisees, though they uh, get a hard time, and a lot of times I give them a hard time, and justifiably so, I do want you to understand that Pharisees are a group of people who have a... Their heart is to follow the Lord. They are wayward, and they have gotten uh, completely off track. But you've got to realize that you've got a Jewish nation that finds itself under the oppression and occupation of a Roman government. And so the, the Jews had to figure out, well, what are we going to do in the midst of this occupation? I mean, how are we going to preserve our heritage? How are we going to practice our Jewish belief system? And so you have the Essenes, who are a group of people who are hyper, hyper uh, conservative, who just went off into the wilderness and they were separatists and, and they just left society and thought if they just went off on their own and lived in a bubble, they could, they could protect themselves and live there. Then on the other side, you've got the Sadducees. The Sadducees were the liberals 
the ones who decided, well, our solution is going to be to embrace the Roman culture and to just really water down the teaching of the Old Testament. The Sadducees didn't believe in the supernatural. They really uh, tried to embrace as much of the Roman culture as they possibly could. And so really there was no real distinction amongst the Sadducees. But the Pharisees... The Pharisees were sort of the the middle class, the middle of the road. They were the people who decided to stay within the culture and to preserve the Jewish heritage and to do their very best to practice that which the Bible taught. And so over time, they started out uh, seeking after the Lord, but over time they began to slowly add more and more things to the law. They began to as we all would in every situation and have a tendency to do even now, as we learn more and and become more disciplined and our obedience on the outside seems to look uh, a little shinier than it used to, they got prideful and they began to see themselves as better than others. And so they wound up in a place where even when God sent His Son, when God was right before them, they couldn't see it for their, their legalism, for their pride, and for their, their self-assurance and, and all their, their self-confidence. Luke 19, Jesus said, The Son of Man has come to seek and save that which was lost. See, you must understand the problem with the Pharisees is that they don't see themselves as a group in need. They're, they see themselves as a group that, that is the... the the obedient ones, the religious ones, the insiders, the ones closest to God. So they're not looking for help. So when the Lord comes and declares that He's here to seek and save that which is lost, they're not looking for that. But that's always been who God is, even from the very beginning, all the way back in Genesis 3, when sin enters the world. What happens after sin comes in? Adam and Eve, they they retreat, they hide themselves from the presence of the Lord. The Bible says, then the Lord called out to Adam and he said to him, where are you? The Lord is seeking sinners even in the garden when there's only two. He's seeking them. Since the very moment, the very moment that sin entered the world, God's been seeking lost men and women. Jesus came to this earth to reveal the nature and character in the flesh of a seeking God. Jesus just brought forth into this world the reality of who God's always been. So in John 14, verse 9, Jesus says, He who has seen me has seen the Father. That we're one. In Matthew chapter 1, even at the birth of Jesus, the Bible says that, that Mary will bring forth a son and that His name will be called Jesus for He will save His people from their sin. It's always been the mission. But here's the caution. The caution that we all need to see before we ever get into these parables is that the Pharisees represent a great danger that all of us have to face. And that is that you can be in such close proximity. You can be surrounded by religion. You can be utterly committed to being obedient. You can be the best rule follower in the world. And you can miss the whole point. You can miss it all. And isn't that what Jesus has been saying for the last two chapters? I mean, isn't that the, the, the discussions that we've had about, about the door being shut and people banging on the door and, and declaring that they, they ought to be ushered in because of all that they've done? You see, these aren't the people that Jesus is now sitting with talking. That's not, they're not the ones. The sinners and the tax collectors would not be the people banging on the door saying, God, we deserve to come in. They know they don't deserve to come in. The ones who would be declaring, God, we've prophesied in Your name. We've we've cast out demons in Your name. We've done all these good works. And He looks at them and says, Depart from Me, for I never knew You. Those are the religious people. That's the danger that we have. We don't... Listen, we live like we... 
We, we talk like we live in a, a culture that's filled with people who just utterly and completely reject God. We, we talk like we live in a culture, really, that's filled with sinners and tax collectors. But that's not really true. We live in a culture right here in Gulfport, Mississippi, that's far more filled with Pharisees than it is tax collectors and sinners. And so the context means everything to understanding what Jesus has to say this morning. So in verse 3, when the Bible says He spoke this parable to them, who is them? You see, He's not talking to the people He's sitting with eating. He's talking to the people who are criticizing Him for being in there. And so to understand what He says, you've got to know who He's speaking to. He's speaking to you and me this morning. So that's the context. Now let's let Jesus bring us into the clarification. He's once again going to clarify why He's here and what He's to accomplish. Now, it just struck me this week as I, I have read this chapter of Scripture thousands of times. Preached on it multitudes of times. But so many things just grabbed me for the very first time. I, I was just utterly taken aback by the reality that God has all knowledge to choose from. He really, anything for Him is, is possible because anything we know is because He's revealed it to us or allowed us to know it or created it so that we have an idea that it exists. So basically, if He wanted to use something as an illustration, He could just bring it into our world so that we would be able to understand it, right? So basically, there's an infinite number of things... But certainly everything that we know and are aware of is at His disposal. But He chooses a shepherd, a sheep, a woman, and a coin. Now why? Of of all the things He could have said, of all the stories He could have told, of all the illustrations that would have conveyed a point, why this? He says in verse 4, What man of you, having a hundred sheep, if he loses one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the wilderness and go after the one which is lost until he finds it? Now, at first reading, I I know that what stumps us about this statement is, is that it seems a little irresponsible. It seems a little irresponsible. It doesn't seem like somebody's really calculating the risk here if they're going to leave the 99 and go after the one. It seems like if you were, if you read the manual on shepherding, the manual would say that you need to hedge your bet. And if you lose one, but you have 99, protect the 99. Don't go chasing after the one. Because if you leave the 99 and go after the one, who knows what's going to happen to the 99? I mean, I did some research. I started reading some historical information about shepherds because I wanted to know, well, what can I find out about a shepherd who had a hundred sheep? Was that a big time shepherd or was that a little kind of pauper shepherd? Well, a hundred sheep was a pretty modest flock. So he wasn't like a huge rancher shepherd because he obviously doesn't have other people. There's no indication he has people that work for him. So he's sort of a lone ranger kind of a shepherd. So a hundred sheep is a pretty small group. It's manageable. It would make sense that one, one shepherd would watch over a hundred sheep. That one sheep represents one one hundredth of his livelihood, of his wealth. Sheep would be the most important asset a shepherd had. There'd be nothing else on the planet that mattered to a shepherd as much as sheep. They were his livelihood. They were his life. Now, he didn't have to go after the one sheep, but he made that choice. He decided that he was going to go after the sheep that was lost. Now, what about the woman? He says in verse 8, 
Or what woman, having ten silver coins, if she loses one coin, does not light a lamp, sweep the house, and search carefully until she finds it? Again, I'm just thinking, doing some research. I wanted to know about these silver coins. I wanted to know about what they represent. I want to know what, what, is it, what is Jesus saying that everyone in the crowd automatically knew, but we don't know because we're disconnected from this culture. Well... They're ten silver coins. They're, they're not worth very much money. Each coin was about a day's wage. She's not a woman of great means. Or she wouldn't have been worried about one of these coins. It wouldn't have been the end of the world. So she's obviously a poor woman. Some scholars argue that this represents her dowry. That she probably had these ten coins and had them out because they represent, you know, this is her, her dowry. Then she's, 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 you know, counting them and looking at them and they're important to her and, and, and they've been given to her to take care of. And so when she loses one, it's a catastrophe. I don't know, but I know this, they were very valuable to her. She was poor because that one coin meant a great deal. But what is Jesus communicating to us with these two stories? Or really the three, even the parable of the lost sons. What, what is He telling us? Well, He's teaching us about sin, first of all. He's teaching us that all these stories have this, have this current beneath them. About sin. He's teaching us that sin is, is running from God through various means. That we don't all run the same way. That there's some of us who run like sheep. We're foolish. See, sheep are stupid. They, they don't know any better. They run in their ignorance. Some of us run from God like sheep. Then there's the coin. Some of us are like this woman who lost a coin in that we run from God in our carelessness. We, we haven't taken great care. We haven't really been thoughtful about, about, well, why are we here? And what's important? And what matters? And what are we doing with our life? And so in carelessness, we, we just sort of run away from God in some sort of denial, if you will. And then there's the prodigal son who, who, who runs in, in willfulness, in pride. Some of us run just willfully, pridefully. We, we rebelliously we run. But either way, whether it's like a sheep or a coin or a son, it, it's still sin. It's still running from God. Secondly, I, I see him showing us in these parables the helplessness of mankind. You see, well, why a sheep? Well, sheeps are, sheep aren't like, Cats or dogs. They, they, they make terrible pets because if you let a sheep out to go to the bathroom, it never comes back. You know, I mean, you talk about need a, a, to put a chip in them, man, you'd have to have a tracking device. You know, they, they have no concept of stay in the yard. So, I mean, I got dumb animals, let me tell you. But I would just hug my, my little dachshund last night and said, thank you for not being a sheep. You know, as dumb as you are, thank you for not being a sheep. I mean, you got to understand. Lisa comes home with a toy for, for Oscar, the weenie dog. Very creative, I know. A giant plat rubber chicken. So I got a weenie dog running around the house with a big rubber chicken. There's just something wrong with this whole picture. I mean, I, I'm thinking, this has got to be the dumbest thing. I mean, he's proud of this chicken. I'm thinking, okay. But see, sheep, sheep don't find their way home. They don't come back. They, they go away, and apart from a shepherd, there's really no hope for a sheep. A sheep without a shepherd is dead. So it's, it's the helplessness of the sheep that really compels us to, to see why God chose that illustration. But what about the coin? Maybe you're, maybe so you find it a little offensive, maybe that God, well God, are we like a coin? Well yeah. We're like a coin in the, in the, in the fact that coins can't find themselves. Coins are dependent upon the value placed on them by the seeker. You see, 
What determines whether or not someone's going to search for the coin is the value of the one who owns it. You see, the one who owns the coin places the value on the coin that determines whether or not they're going to find it. They're going to seek it. Because if the coin doesn't really matter, when you drop a nickel and it falls into you know a hole somewhere or something, you just keep on walking because it's your nickel. You owned it, but you don't care. It's not valuable. So a coin, a coin is helpless, like a sheep. Thirdly, so we, we see the helplessness of man. We see the, that sin is really running from God through various different means. And thirdly, I think we see that the Lord here is defining people, people, as His treasure. That it, The illustration that He's making as He's talking to the Pharisees, and he's sitting amongst the tax collectors and the sinners. you got to get the picture of what's happening here. He's talking to a group of people who think that the people he's sitting with are of no value, and he's expressing the fact that the people that are all around him, on both sides of him, in front of him and behind him, are God's treasure. You see that the Lord finds great value in people. But people oftentimes are very cynical, are very choosy, are very separatist, very picky about who we find value in. Do you see the disconnect? He's declaring that people, mankind, men, women, children are the treasure of God. And he's standing between two groups of people who see no value in one another. And I just thought, Lord... You're the shepherd who seeks. You're the the woman who goes after the coin. You're the father who runs down to meet the son. That's who you are. And, And I am your treasure. And you are his treasure. Help me now to see people the way you see people. Help me to see. That if I'm your treasure, then other people are your treasure. People that I may not oftentimes tend to see that way. So as the shepherd or the woman or the father, what does he do? Well, he takes action. He he defines the relationship. In other words, he declares what the rules of engagement are going to be. He's the one who says, I am going to lead the way. I'm going to intervene. I'm the one who's going to step in. I'm the one who's going to come down. I'm the one who's going to take action. He didn't just send help. He didn't just send some medicine to heal our wounds. He didn't just send, you know, some good advice. He sent his very best into the darkness of this world to declare our relationship is based on love. My declaration that people are my treasure is backed up by the cross that my son dies on. So you don't have to wonder if I'm serious about this or committed to this or if this is something that really matters to me. This isn't some flippant invitation to some friendship. This is a love relationship that's been sealed in the death of his son. You see, he didn't just stand around and realize he's got a group here that doesn't like the group there. He didn't just look around at the helpless sheep and the lost coin and the the wayward son and just say, what a mess you've made of your life. Here's ten things you ought to do. Why don't you take this advice and see if you can help yourself or give us... He didn't do any of that. In the midst of all that, he cracked open eternity, sent his son right in the midst of us and said, here I am. I love you. I'm the solution. I'm here for you. You come to me. But before you come, I'm going to seek you. I'm coming after you because you're a sheep. You don't even know what to do. You don't know how to come home. You're a coin. You can't help yourself, but I'm coming for you. I'm coming for you. You see that. And even when you turn, even when you turn in the moment in the realization of that, say, God, you, you love me. 
You see, the gospel begins to, to birth inside of us and we begin to see that that is the gospel message. The Bible says in 1 John chapter 4, in this the love of God was manifest towards us. It was seen. It was made real. It was brought before us that God sent His only begotten Son into the world that we might live through Him. You see, the, apart from Him, there's no life. There's only death. That's the gospel. But religion chokes out that reality in our lives. You see, you have to understand that, that our hearts never drift toward God. We drift the other way. We, we need to identify with the Pharisees that are in this chapter. We need to see the reality that we fit a whole lot closer with them than anyone else. See, religion says, I obey, therefore God accepts me. The gospel says I'm accepted, therefore I obey. Religion says that I'm motivated by my fear and my, my insecurity and that if I don't do the right things, God's going to punish me. The gospel says I obey God out of the gratefulness and the, the joy that I found in Him. Religion comes along and it, it twists us around so that we want to follow God, we want to obey God, we want to do things that please God because we want God to bless us. But you see, the gospel says I'm saved by grace alone. That I didn't earn it and I can't do anything to earn it. And so I just obey God to get God. Not stuff. Religion creeps into our hearts when we are criticized. And that criticism begins to break us down. It causes bitterness and anger within us because religion makes us very sensitive to anything that attacks our performance. And so if we don't perform outwardly well, then criticism is what's going to follow. And so we want to put forth our best foot. We want to look like we're performing and doing our duty. But the gospel says when I'm criticized, it may be hard, but my identity is not in my performance. It's in Christ. My identity is what is in what God has done for me, not what I do. Religion convinces you and me that when bad things happen to us, God's punishing us for poor performance or bad behavior. But the gospel says that when life gets hard, we persevere because all of the punishment that was due us has been paid for on the cross by our Savior, Jesus Christ. And God's love for His children is unchanging. You see, our hearts drift to religion. They don't drift to the gospel. We need to constantly be reminded of the gospel. That's why God calls us to be together. That's why God calls us to study His Word, to preach the gospel to ourselves and to one another. Because if we don't, we just drift into this pharisaical existence where everything becomes religion, not gospel-driven relationship. And so Jesus is establishing and clarifying the gospel through these parables. But then, at the end of each story, He puts the celebration. He gives us the context, the clarification, but now He gives us the celebration. He says of the shepherd that the joy that the shepherd experiences in the retrieval of his sheep is so great that he has to share it with other people. He can't contain himself. He can't keep him to himself. He says in verse 5, when he's found his sheep, he lays it on his shoulders, rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together all his friends and neighbors and says to them, rejoice with me, for I found my sheep which was lost. Jesus says, I say to you that likewise... There will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 just persons who need no repentance. Now, Jesus pictures this shepherd as having to go out and find this wayward sheep 
And when he gets there, I don't see any indication of retribution. I don't see grumbling and complaining. I see a shepherd pictured in this story who, who retrieves the sheep. However long he has to look for it, he, he binds it up, puts it on his shoulders. He has to carry it. It's uncomfortable. It smells. He's probably wet and stinky. And certainly there's other things he wants to do. His favorite TV show is on, but he's not watching that. He's out chasing this sheep in the middle of the dark, trying to find him. And he's not doing anything other than rejoicing that he's found the sheep. His joy is in the retrieval of the lost sheep. And his joy is so great that he calls together his friends and like-minded people celebrate, recognizing the greatness of what has happened. And so Jesus takes this and, and brings it into the heavenly realm. And he says that there's joy in heaven, that heaven rejoices over this one sinner. Who repents. Not over 99 who need no repentance. Not over, not over 99 people who do the right things. Not over 99 people who are good people. People who follow the rules. People who serve their community. People who, who work at soup kitchens. People who give to charity. People who do all sorts of good things. But they don't need repentance. In other words, they're... They're more like cats or dogs than they are like sheep. See, people who can find their own way home. People who don't really need retrieval. Or retrieval's good, but if you don't retrieve them, eventually they'll be okay. They're, they have, you know, the capability to defend themselves or to climb up trees and hide or to do whatever they need to do. So they don't need repentance. Because repentance is the last thing. You're not, you're not just going to start with repentance. You're not just going to humble yourself in repentance if there's another way, if there's, you know, if there's another option. If you can get around it, we're going to do it. But see here, the shepherd's rejoicing over the one. The one. Calling together like-minded people. See, in the heavenly realm, this is the, the like-mindedness of, of heaven that rejoices. There's joy over one Sinner, one. Then the woman who finds the coin in verse 9. When she says that she's found it, look at her celebration. Again, she calls her friends and neighbors and says, Rejoice with me, for I found the peace which I lost. Jesus says, Likewise, I say to you, there is joy in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Almost the same, but slightly different. He doesn't say that the joy is of the angels. He doesn't say that. He says that the joy is in the presence of the angels. And who's in the presence of the angels but the the triune God of the universe? The joy is emanating from God, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit in heaven and radiating into the angels. But the source of the joy is God. See, Jesus left a heavenly community that prioritized and found great joy in celebrating sinners saved by grace and came down to earth to establish a community on earth that would do the same thing. That the the idea here is that we need to see that Jesus came to bring what goes on in heaven here. That People, that's why the angels marvel at the gospel. That how could there be a plan where God would take sinners, rebels, pirates like us and create a community that would celebrate the gospel? And that's exactly what it is. It's that we are to celebrate sinners saved by grace. We don't ever want to be a place... That's celebrating 99 just people. We we don't want to be a place that's glorifying legalistic works. We want to find our joy in the repentant, life-changing power of the gospel. That's where we want to find our joy. And you see, in this, we what else do we see? We see joy offset by the other emotion. In other words, that's, that's the great comfort that I, I give to the Christian family at their loved one's funeral. There's a reason why you're sad. There's a reason why you mourn the loss of 
the one that you had the privilege and opportunity to love in this lifetime. And where there's love, there'll be sorrow when it's lost. But it's better. It's better, like the saying says, to love and, and have lost than never to love at all. But if there's joy over this sinner who's repented, if there's joy in heaven, then you see the, the, the genuineness of God's sorrow over the unrepentant, the, the one who doesn't need, the, the one who rebels, the brokenheartedness of God over the lost. Because that's what compels the search. You see, if the, if the lost were not the treasure, then the price of your only son would never be paid. Don't you see that? That the, the price paid by God should compel us to just bow before Him and say, Lord, in light of what you have done, how much must you love us. And again, Jesus just brings forth the reality of who God has always been. Isaiah 62, the Bible says that as a bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so shall your God rejoice over you. That God would identify Himself as, as a bridegroom. Look at the commitment here. Not, not as a, not, not as some fleeting joy, but in the, he, he uses the commitment of his joy to his people to connect to what we understand as a life, the greatest earthly commitment we make to one another, and that is marriage. That he says, we're bound together, and I'm gonna find joy over you in that bond. That's my commitment to you. Jeremiah 32, the Bible says, yes, the Lord says, I will rejoice over them to do them good. And I will assuredly plant them in this land with all my heart and with all my soul. You see the commitment of God in the Old Testament to do good and to love his people. He's committed like marriage. He's committed with all his heart and soul. He doesn't just call us to love him that way. He goes first. He says, I love you that way. He's committed to his joy. Zephaniah 3.17, the Lord is, our God is in your midst, the mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you in gladness. He will quiet you with his love. He will rejoice over you with singing. This is our God. This is the Old Testament God who brings forth the reality of who He's always been, what His purpose has always been throughout all eternity in His Son, Jesus Christ, whom becomes the sacrificial Lamb that makes it all possible. Who could think of such a thing? It just boggles my mind. Ezekiel 34. This is an amazing passage of Scripture. Here's what the Bible says. The word of the Lord comes to the prophet, saying, Son of man, prophesy against the shepherds of Israel. Prophesy and say to them, Thus says the Lord God to the shepherds, Woe to the shepherds of Israel who feed themselves. Should not the shepherds feed the flocks? But you eat the fat and clothe yourselves with the wool. You slaughter the fatlings, but you do not feed the flock? Verse 4, the weak you have not strengthened, nor have you healed those who were sick, nor bound up the broken, nor brought back those who were driven away, nor sought that which was lost, but with force and cruelty you have ruled them. He goes on in verse 11 to say, For thus says the Lord, Indeed, I myself will search for my sheep and seek them out. He declares, I will do it. In verse 16, he says, I will seek that which was lost. I will bring back that which was driven away. I will bind up the broken. I will strengthen what was sick. But how? How? These Old Testament saints read this passage and say, but God, how are you going to do this? How is this going to happen? You say this, but how? And in verse 23, he says, here's how. I will establish one shepherd over them. And he shall feed them, my servant David. He shall feed them and be their shepherd. And I, the Lord, will be their God. And my servant David will be a prince among them. I, the Lord, have spoken. Now when they read this, they knew something. 
Because King David had been dead for 600 years when this was written. This wasn't some earthly David. This wasn't some king that once upon a time ruled over Israel, no. This is the Lord prophesying and declaring His love for His people. That like He sent David, He's sending a new David, a better David, a prince, a shepherd. One shepherd who will take care of all the sheep, who will reign over them as a prince. That He will be their God and He and, and His shepherd will be their prince. That this one who's coming... He's going to heal up the brokenhearted. He's going to go and seek that which is lost. He's going to bring them back into the fold. God sent you and me a shepherd. He didn't send us a good teacher. He didn't say, here's here's a teacher, learn from him. He didn't send us a great leader and say, here's a great leader. Why don't you emulate him and try to be like him? He didn't do that. He He sent a shepherd. And you know what we do? We respond to the gift of a shepherd by saying, you know what we got to do? We got to get our act together. We got to try harder. We got to clean up our lives. There, There are no doubt people in this room right now who are distant from God. And every time we get to this part of the service, what runs through your mind are all the things about yourself that aren't fixed. All the the things that you intend to do to get yourself prepared to surrender to God. And in reality, you don't need a shepherd. You're, You're not declaring that there's a shepherd. You're declaring that, well, you can, you can find your way home. And when you get home, then you'll go inside and be with the shepherd. But I want you to consider something. Of the whole hundred sheep that are in the flock, of all hundred, which sheep is the stupidest? I mean, we don't know his name or her name. But we know there's one that's more ignorant than the other 99. We know that. Which sheep is the most rebellious? I mean, we don't know their name. We don't know what color the sheep was or if he was real bushy or not so bushy or cross-eyed. or We don't know any of that information. But here's what we know. There was one that was dumber. There was one that was more rebellious. Of the hundred sheep, which sheep had the poorest performance report? Which sheep did the shepherd pursue? He went after the most rebellious. He went after the the poor performer. He went after the one who wandered the furthest. He left the 99 and he pursued the one They couldn't help themselves. They couldn't stay in the flock. They couldn't do on his own. What is the message? Listen. This is the God that we serve. This is the God this morning that calls us to relationship with Him. He says, you don't don't have... You don't have anything to to worry about. You you don't you don't you don't need to you don't you don't need to fear coming to me and and being rejected. You don't need to fear that that you're not good enough. You don't need to fear that that you've made too many mistakes in the past or that you've gone too far outside the bounds of 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 his realm. You, you, all that throw it out the window. He pursues me and you relentlessly because He knows the truth about us. When are we going to admit the reality that we like sheep have all gone astray and that today 
is yet another opportunity to worship the shepherd who took the initiative, who intervened, who placed the value on us such that he would seek us relentlessly, pursue us, and retrieve us unto himself. And a shepherd provides all the care necessary for the sheep, all the protection, all the provision, everything that you need is found in his pasture. Him. He's the shepherd. Will you stand, bow your heads, close your eyes, consider this morning the grace of God upon our lives that He would orchestrate such an unbelievable plan to redeem mankind, to give us an opportunity to be reminded of our tendency to drift, but our need to be rekindled. Father, I thank You today. I thank You, Father, for Your Word. I thank You for the grace, Lord, that abounds on our lives. I thank You, Father, that we all like sheep have gone astray, but You, Lord, are the Good Shepherd. You you sought us out, Lord. You, you, you lit a lamp and swept the floor and searched until You found us, God. And then You celebrated, Lord God. And, Father, all of heaven celebrated with You. And Father, we give you praise and glory as we try to imagine what it will be like to be a part of that celebration. Father, we recognize what's at stake right now. We realize that angels peer down from heaven and are astonished at the reality that God would extend such an amazing invitation to people. Lord, let it be so that no one would reject that invitation today. That we'd realize how gracious you are and how wonderful you are. Father, thank you. Thank you for letting us dwell together in this pasture. Thank you, Lord God, that we're, we're all retrieved sheep. All of us. God, we're so grateful today. So, Lord, today we want to worship you at this altar, Father. There are people in this room who want to come and kneel before this altar and just praise you and thank you for retrieving them. Just give you glory, Lord, for what you have accomplished in their life through sheer grace, Lord. Father, there are some who, whose hearts have been set aflame again, afresh and anew. We want to come and, and just rekindle, Lord God, their relationship with You and bow before You and say, God, thank You for not giving up on me, Lord. Thank You for reminding me that Your love for me is not based on my performance. Thank You. And Lord, maybe there's some here today that find themselves lost they find themselves apart from a shepherd. And Father, they, they right now realize that the good shepherd, the great shepherd is calling them. Oh, how we could rejoice this morning at you calling one more into the flock. Thank you for what you'll do today, Lord. In Jesus' name.